question. So I want to thank Dr. Sherner, as you can tell from the main slide, if you didn't look at the schedule, John's going to talk to us today about massive pulmonary embolism. I think he's well known to uh, many in the group, not just from his recent time at hospital center, but going back to um, all of his training and his roles at um, at, uh, at Walter Reed and the National uh, Military Medical Center. But John did his undergraduate at Notre Dame, so go Irish, before doing uh, medical school at UT Southwestern, and then um, both internal medicine residency and his home critical care fellowship at, I can say at Walter Reed, because at that time it was at Walter Reed. And obviously John was program director at Walter Reed for quite a while, and that's when I first met John. Um, and got to work with him during our collaboration with everybody on the education blocks and um, and other educational endeavors. And prior to joining us as our chair of medicine at Washington Hospital Center, um, John was at Fort, at Fort Belvoir as chair, chief of service or chair of medicine over at Fort Belvoir. So I could keep going on, but I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Scherner to begin his lecture. Yeah, thanks, thanks, yeah, thanks Chris. Um, I think everybody can hear me okay. Um, so yeah, it's great to be back. It's been a little hiatus since I haven't uh, been involved in the uh, education blocks as much the past couple of years, so I'm uh, happy to be back. When the course directors and program directors were sending out this sort of list of topics for the for this series, uh, I saw massive pulmonary embolism on the list, and I said, well, I have an interest in PE. I'll, I'll sign up for that one. And then I started thinking, I'm not really sure I have that much to say about massive pulmonary embolism. I think a lot of the debate you know, centers on sort of intermediate risk um, pulmonary embolism nowadays. But as we delve into it, I think we'll see there is quite a bit to go through and talk about um, today. So um, looking forward to, to talking to you guys about this. So um, briefly, we'll talk about definitions, classifications very briefly, just to make sure everybody's on the same page. I'm going to highlight some of the pathophysiology, uh, I think predominantly as review, but I think it's always good to go back to that as you talk about your, uh, your treatment uh, for the patient. Um, and we're going to spend a lot of time on treatment, both treating the patient and their sort of physiological their physiology, and also sort of treating the underlying problem, which is the clot in the case of massive uh, PE. And at the end, we'll finish with a couple of uh, special situations to uh, take note of. So without uh, further delay, we'll do a quick case here. So 78-year-old woman that I saw uh, with sarcoidosis, pretty quiescent, not on any immunosuppressive therapy. Um, she has hypertension, obesity. She came in with about a day and a half of profound dysmion exertion to the point of near syncope where she was feeling very lightheaded anytime she would get up and walk. She came into the ED with those complaints. Um, as you might expect, got a CTPA, which showed a saddle embolus and a left lower extremity DVT. Uh, her vital signs are shown there. She's tachycardic, and she is hypotensive, 88 over 58. Her baseline blood pressure uh, on her meds is, is in the normal tensive range, and she does not have significant hypoxemia. Uh, her CBC, CMP were normal. Her troponin was 580, which is elevated. Our, our range here is 0 to 32. And she started on a, on a heparin drip. Um, here's her um, imaging study. So you can see she has a large saddle embolus and bilateral main pulmonary artery, uh, filling defects consistent with PE. And a little farther down, she has a dilated RV uh, and kind of a smushed D-shaped uh, LV, uh, suggesting right heart strain. Um, and so at this point, you know, several questions should be sort of on your mind. Um, predominantly, should this patient receive advanced or additional therapies? Um, and as a sort of intensivist, um, non-interventionalist or surgeon, this generally means thrombolytics. Um, so should this patient get thrombolytics? Can this patient get thrombolytics? If so, what dose? 
Um, how are we going to manage the anticoagulation surrounding the, the, the administration of thrombolytics? What if they can't get thrombolytics? What are the other options? Uh, or what if we give lytics and things aren't better? What do, what do we do at that point? And then the, the sort of the other side of that is, okay, while that's going on, while I'm deciding what I'm going to do there uh, and get other folks involved if needed, how do I keep this patient alive, right? She's got some pretty significant uh, markers of severe illness right now. Um, so just to review the PE classification schemes that are out there. So, you know, 2011 AHA sort of said massive, submassive, and low. So massive being hypotension, submassive RV strain without hypotension, and low risk without either of those. In 2014, the European Society of Cardiology further broke things down into uh, intermediate high and intermediate low risk. So intermediate high having both RV strain and biomarker evidence, uh, intermediate low having uh, one or the other uh, as far as indicators of RV strain. Uh, and then in 2016, the ACCB guidelines, um, again, massive was associated with hypotension. No hypotension will be sort of your intermediate risk group if there's evidence of RV strain, and then your low risk group. And we're going to talk about the top line today, right? So the folks who have hypotension um, or, or shock associated with their PE. Here's another sort of schematic just sort of showing those categories, right? And I like this one because it puts things in nice little boxes, right? And we're going to focus over here on the right today on the massive, uh, massive PE associated with hypotension. But, uh, you know, there's considerable overlap in these, in these groups, obviously. And it really, it's better to think about things as a spectrum. And I think even when you're focusing within the high risk category, you know, there, there's still a good bit of overlap. And so I think it's better to think of it kind of this way. Right, you have uh, patients who are in the high risk group who are essentially almost dead, or you know they're undergoing CPR, they effectively are dead, or you have people like our lady um, who is has a little bit of hypotension but doesn't have uh, any frank signs of shock at least uh, as of yet, and those all fall within the high risk category. And so clearly those are very different patients with different outcomes, and we don't have any way of sort of breaking them out um, as of now. Um, and so it, it's a spectrum, and the farther to the right you are here, obviously the more potential benefit you have. Uh, from aggressive intervention. So uh, I think that's a good way to look at that. But for purposes of sort of making clear definitions and making sure we're all on the same page, massive PE or high-risk PE is PE, which is hemodynamically unstable. And that means either involving CPR, there's obstructive shock with uh, signs of organ failure, hypoperfusion, um, sustained bradycardia um, as a sort of precursor to a nasostalk arrest is also uh, a qualifying criteria for, for hemodynamically unstable, or there's sustained hypotension, right? So an SBP less than 90 uh, or more than 40 points below baseline for more than 15 minutes that's otherwise unexplained. So everything has to fit together, uh, you know, for this to, to work out. It can't be somebody who has an incidentally discovered PE um, and maybe has other reasons for being hypotensive. There should be a significant clot burden. There should be signs of RV strain on your echo or your CT scan. There should be a, a plethoric IVC um, uh, indicating that the PE is the cause of the hypotension. And these criteria first came about, you know, a long time ago in the 50s and 60s uh, with data showing that there was a really high risk of death uh, within the first couple of hours of a hypotensive presentation of PE and extending out for the first couple of days. And the data over time have continued to, to bear that out. So this is clearly a very high-risk group. Um, how often does it happen? Uh, somewhere you know, around 5% of all PEs will be associated with uh, sustained hypotension. Um, this is from the ICOPER um, database in the 90s and early 2000s. About 15% of these massive PEs were diagnosed at autopsy, so it, it was an often misdiagnosis. 
very high 90-day mortality, indicating that both it's a severe illness in itself and it occurs in people who have underlying uh, diseases. Uh, interestingly, um, back at, at this time, uh, almost two-thirds of the patient got no, patients got no additional sort of intervention, um, no lytics, no surgical embolectomy. There really weren't catheter-directed therapies uh, around at this time. Um, and, and at least in this database, lytics weren't really associated with reduced mortality. That is not, that is not held true, I think, in, in some of the subsequent data. And um, also an interesting finding, 10% of the of cases in this series had right heart thrombi associated with the diagnosis of massive uh, PE, and we'll come back to that in a little bit as well. So as I mentioned, the, the data really have borne out. You know, I think we're all familiar with RV dysfunction as kind of the trump card when you're risk stratifying all comers for PE. Um, uh, and if you have RV dysfunction, you have an inpatient mortality of around 8%. That pretty much doubles if it's associated with sustained hypotension uh, and goes up farther, as you might expect, with shock or CPR. So clearly a high-risk group uh, that should get your attention, and we need to really think about uh, aggressive therapies for this group of patients. And that does apply, I think, to our patient I presented in the case here. She ended up having sustained uh, hypotension, really no other cause identified, uh, placing her at significant risk of mortality. Um, and she is likely to benefit potentially from advanced therapies. And so at that point, uh, our next question is, so what about the risks of those advanced therapies? And as I mentioned uh, before, when we're at the bedside, what can I give as an intensivist that, that's talking mostly about uh, systemic thrombolytics? Um, and so let's go through that uh, quickly. I think we're all pretty familiar with the contraindications to thrombolytics. The point I want to make here is that you know, they're oftentimes broken into absolute and relative contraindications, but again, this is a spectrum. Um, there's a lot of uh, room for subjectivity and sort of um, judgment in, in many of these criteria. But just to review, so absolute contraindications are generally thought to be, um, you know, active CNS neoplasm or active CNS process, including hemorrhage, recent stroke, so 90 days stroke, particularly if there's a residual deficit, uh, obviously aortic dissection. Significant head trauma, so this is like facial fracture head trauma, not, not uh, insignificant bumps, uh, which are not uh, necessarily a contraindication. And then any active non-menstrual bleeding is generally thought to be an absolute contraindication. Um, I would submit that, you know, some of these, there, there probably is some uh, room for judgment. And again, it depends on where the patient is on the severity spectrum as well. And, and somebody, somebody who is peri-arrest or coding, there probably are no absolute contraindications um, if that's the only therapy available. Uh, and then the relative risks that are often listed is, so age greater than 75, so this is the biggest one, age-dependent bleeding risk. Uh, this has been borne out in, in multiple studies that the risk of bleeding with thrombolytics is strongly correlated with age. Prolonged CPR is often listed as a relative contraindication. Recent internal bleeding or surgery generally within two to three weeks. Uncontrolled blood pressure, a coagulopathy or bleeding diathesis. And then pregnancy is also often listed um, as a relative contraindication. We're going to talk more about that uh, in a little bit as well. When we talk about bleeding risk, though, I think, you know, the, the thing we're most concerned about, at least the thing I'm most concerned about, is intracranial hemorrhage risk. Uh, a lot of the other bleeding, you know, transfusions, the, the major bleeding um, is usually considered, you know, two-point drop in your hemoglobin and requiring two units of, of blood. That's generally something that can be dealt with. Um, but intracranial hemorrhage, obviously, is very devastating. Uh, this is data from the MI um, literature back in the 90s, um, looking at uh, bleeding risk associated with some demographic factors, um, uh, the patients who got lytics for their MIs. And uh, you can see, I mean, if you have an 80-year-old African-American woman uh, who is frail, 
she has a very significant uh, bleeding risk. She's approaching, you know, four risk factors. So she's approaching 4% uh, risk of intracranial hemorrhage. So, um, a, you know, that's a non-small, non-insignificant risk of um, intracranial hemorrhage, although it's much lower than a 30% mortality from, from a PE. So um, that's really where, where judgment starts coming into play. So I think this is another list of criteria that you can look at to sort of get a sense of what's your bleeding risk. I think most people would probably agree that we uh, tend to, to overestimate um, bleeding risk and intracranial hemorrhage risk, um, uh, despite this data here. So, uh, so we've talked about severity. We've talked about bleeding risk. I think, you know, for our patient, I think she falls, you know, somewhere uh, on that spectrum of having a significant PE, so uh, so high risk uh, PE. And I think she would not be in a low bleeding risk category based on her age of, of 78. Um, it's always good to come back to the guidelines as a starting point when you're trying to sort of uh, think about uh, management of your patient. So just to review the ACCP guidelines. Uh, so systemic thrombolytics are recommended for PE with hypotension and low bleeding risk. Um, again, I don't think I would categorize this patient with low bleeding risk uh, based on her age. Most patients without hypotension recommend against lytics, not really the focus of this talk. Um, but if they deteriorate, um, then thrombolytics are suggested. For patients with hypotension, high bleeding risk, failed lytics, or shock, likely to cause death within hours, and there's expertise for catheter-directed therapy that's recommended over no intervention. Um, and interestingly, that you know, there is no sort of intermediate uh, bleeding risk, which is where I would uh, put this patient, which I think is somewhere where I think we need to sort of uh, get to where we have uh, maybe some refined uh, bleeding risk assessments uh, for some of these patients. So if we were going to give thrombolytics to this patient, uh, let's talk about uh, regimens and dosing. And I'm going to talk about TPA, predominantly uh, altiplase, which I think is the agent of, of choice uh, and the one that's widely available. It's the only one that's been available in most places where, where I've practiced. Um, so the standard regimen, 100 milligrams over two hours. Um, if somebody is pending uh, cardiac arrest or an obstructive shock, you could consider giving a small portion of that as a bolus up front. Uh, an alternative regimen is uh, 0.6 mg per kg over 15 minutes. So this is off-label. It's, uh, it's not listed in the in the uh, approval uh, or in the documents, but it is listed in the European Society of Cardiology Guidelines, and I think there's a lot of interest um, in this, and I'm going to talk a little bit more about dosing in just a second. Uh, for patients who are coding, uh, generally 50 milligram bolus over two minutes, which could be repeated um, if needed, uh, is, a, is a common uh, dosing regimen. And then how about heparin? So um, there's conflicting data or conflicting opinion, really, on, on use of heparin concomitantly with uh, thrombolytics. So the European Society of Cardiology guidelines recommend continuing heparin. Um, in the U.S., I think practice is a lot more variable, and it's often held, and that would be my uh, preference as well. Uh, so holding heparin and resuming when the PTT is less than uh, twice normal uh, is, a, is a common uh, way to manage that. Um, so I want to spend a few minutes talking about reduced dose thrombolytics because I think this is a, an area of interest and it would be great if we end up getting some more data and experience with this. This is from about 10 years ago. This is a, a series of 118 patients with massive PE. Uh, again, they capped their age limit at 75, so they, they limited people from extreme age. And they looked at 50 milligrams versus 100 milligrams over two hours, um, giving the first 10 as a, milligrams as a bolus in each case and the rest over the remainder of the two hours. Uh, their FXC endpoints were echocardiographic, so looking at RV uh, function um, by echo. And you can see their, their bleeding rates here. So one hemorrhage in the full-dose group, uh, three bleeding events in the lower-dose group, and 10 in the, in the um, 
higher risk group, this did not reach significance, although there's clearly a trend there. Uh, there was significance when you looked at underweight patients. Um, and so I think that this, although it's not the highest level data, I would suggest that it's probably as good, if not better, than some of the data that's out there for some of the other interventions that we're going to talk about. Um, this is another meta-analysis uh, that, uh, or systematic review that looked at the same thing. They also showed uh, lower bleeding risk, so 0.33 odds ratio for bleeding with a low-dose regimen without any increased incidence of mortality or recurrent PE. So again, lower-level evidence, but um, some suggestion that there may be benefits of lower-dose thrombolytic regimens. Interestingly, you know, the, the dosing, uh, I'm not really sure how we came up with 100 milligrams. Uh, of PPA, it's sort of uh, picked. You know, the dose for stroke is usually 90 milligrams, and so I don't know that there's anything magical about 100 milligrams, but I think there's sort of mounting, um, you know, suggestion that that's too much, and that you may be able to get away with much lower doses with similar efficacy and uh, lower bleeding risk. And this would be something that would be great to study, although I'm not sure where we're going to get firm, uh, clear data on that. I want to shift gears and talk about uh, sort of non-thrombolytic therapies, right? So what can we do um, that doesn't involve thrombolytics for patients that are deemed to be too high bleeding risk? And so this is just a sort of commentary I logged on. I was looking at this PERC consortium website, and they have a very nice website, lots of, um, lots of educational resources. And, uh, you know, I clicked on one of the educational links, and this is, this is what you get um, just to sort of illustrate that this is heavily supported by pharma. And I think that's what's driving a lot of the studies and things right now is the, is the device world. As you know, with the devices, you generally only have to prove safety, um, and there's a lot less of the impetus to show um, efficacy. Uh, but this is where a lot of the, the literature is going, and I think this is sort of, you know, what's driving some of the classification schemes to sort of, um, you know, push more towards interventions. But, um, but for what it's worth, uh, I wanted to touch base on some of the catheter-based therapies, and this is going to vary from center to center. Um, on the right here, this is the ECOS uh, catheter, the famous ECOS catheter, uh, which is a infusion catheter for infusing lytics uh, into the pulmonary artery locally, uh, accompanied by an ultrasound uh, catheter, which theoretically uh, allows greater penetration of the thrombolytics uh, into, the, um, into the clot. Um, there have been some studies for this. I think, you know, I'm not going to talk too much about it because I think that uh, there's Growing opinion, I think that really the ultrasound doesn't do very much, and it's really the low-dose uh, thrombolytics that are uh, of most of the benefit um, from this. And so, again, it brings us back to, you know, getting more data on the use of low-dose lytics, either systemically or catheter-based. Um, on the left is the uh, is a flow retriever device. This is a, a vacuum aspiration uh, catheter. This is the preferred device for um, our vascular and IR colleagues here at the uh, Washington Hospital Center. Um, this is a, a large catheter. It comes up to like 24 French, so almost like an ECMO size uh, cannula that uh, goes in with a secondary catheter that's got these uh, nitinol discs that go in um, into the clot. And then there's manual aspiration base, so you just pull on the suction catheter to aspirate out the thrombus. And it's designed to be a, a lytic-free system, so it is appealing for uh, patients who have contraindications or very high bleeding risk. Um, you can use, and they often do um, use it to administer lytics uh, as well if, if they're not able to aspirate um, through that. So what is the data out there? Well, there's really not much, as you might imagine. So looking at um, catheter-directed versus systemic lytics, I think that's the big question. Is there a benefit to doing this, you know, these, these, um, this lytic infusion locally uh, versus just through a peripheral IV? 
So this is a, a study that was looking at an admin database of about 100,000 patients. Um, so about 2% of the patients uh, got uh, thrombolytics, uh, either catheter-directed in a third of the cases or in, two, in systemic lytics in about two-thirds of the cases. Again, retrospective sort of database reviews, you can't really say much about the results. I think it's just a little bit interesting to see sort of what's going on there and, and what they saw. And that number in itself is of some interest. So about two-thirds of the patients are still getting systemic lytics um, at this point. Uh, the group who got systemic lytics was you know, sicker. They were shock or cardiac arrest. There's actually more bleeding in the catheter-directed uh, group. Um, they didn't look at doses or anything in this, um, so it, lots of confounders. Um, and you might expect that the catheter-directed group is going to have a higher bleeding risk to start with, uh, which is why they maybe got catheter versus systemic. Um, similar numbers of intracranial hemorrhage and mortality was slightly higher in the systemic group. Again, they had more uh, codes and shock going on. So nothing surprising in, in those numbers. I think it's just kind of an interesting snapshot uh, what's out there with catheter director versus systemic. It doesn't really help to say one is better than the other. Um, and similar uh, database here, I think this is worth mentioning because it does talk about the complication rates, right? So this was a, a series of 130 patients and then a meta-analysis of about 800 patients. Uh, generally, low rates of intracranial hemorrhage uh, and major complication rates in the 5 to 10% rate. Most of these were bleeding-related. Um, and, and uh, we're, we're controlled with, with transfusion. As far as the suction thrombectomy, so the, the aspiration catheter, like the one I just showed you, um, this is the study where I think it uh, led to FDA approval for that device. Uh, they had 100 patients uh, with a 4% major adverse event rate, uh, significant bleeding, uh, a pulmonary vascular injury, which required a lobectomy, and then two patients, uh, one required intubation, one went into BFib. Hard to say whether that's you know, procedure-related or if it was um, just progression of, of disease. Um, but, you know, so uh, low rate, but not a zero rate of, uh, of complications. A little more data saying, so what, what else is done out there? So what is the contemporary management of, of massive uh, PE? In this case, this is actually a study from, this is from the PERT team at the Mass General. Um, so about 340 patients, 46 of them had massive PE, so about a 15% uh, massive uh, PE rate. The massive PE group had about a 30% 30-day mortality. Um, in this case, 72% of patients got advanced intervention. Contrast that to the other data I showed, where uh, only about a third of patients got some sort of advanced intervention. So over the past 15 years, uh, definitely more, more lytics or more catheter-directed therapies going on. In this series, 30% got TPA. 17% got some form of catheter-directed therapy, either lytics or uh, aspiration. Still 15% got surgical embolectomy, which I haven't talked about uh, too much yet. And um, I think in the era of sort of advancing catheter therapies, I think, at least in my mind, it's becoming uh, further down the list of, of places I go other than in very select settings. And then 10% got ECMO, um, uh, either alone or with in conjunction, uh, in conjunction with some of these other therapies. Uh, overall, there was an increased bleeding risk uh, in those who got an advanced intervention, 19% uh, versus 8%. And there was a trend towards improved mortality uh, with uh, advanced therapies, although the study was underpowered. Uh, so that's what's sort of available and what's out there. There really is no data to say specifically uh, which is, uh, is a preferred uh, therapy. So in our case, back to our patient, she um, was medically stabilized. She ended up on a little bit of norepi. Um, she got heparin. She ended up going to IR for suction thrombectomy. She'd actually, uh, uh, they were consulted actually from the ER 
which, which is happening more and more, which I think is, is sort of a case to, to say that we need to stay involved um, uh, with, with the management of PE, because I think it's uh, to a disservice to our patients to have things going directly to proceduralists. That's just my, uh, my uh, soapbox uh, saying there. The, uh, she did have blood loss uh, with this procedure. She had a reasonable bleed. She got transfused one unit. Um, she did have improved hemodynamics and ultimately did well. I saw her in clinic and follow-up, and she is doing well, although she still has elevated um, pulmonary systolic pressures uh, by echo uh, for, for what it's worth. So I want to shift gears um, and talk about the medical management of these patients in the ICU. So uh, ICU management of patients with massive PE while you're either uh, getting your therapies going or waiting for, for therapy to take effect. Um, and this is a, a graph I like. This is a great uh, reference article uh, for you guys. If you haven't read this, this Annals ATS article on RV failure in the ICU. So this slide just nicely, uh, you know, points out the differences between the RV and the LV, which I think we're all aware of. So the graph on the left uh, looks at stroke volume uh, compared to afterload. And so this is the pressure in the vessel, so either the pulmonary artery or the aorta in the case of the left ventricle. And you can see that as afterload goes up, uh, the RV stroke volume drops dramatically. Um, uh, and so it doesn't take much increase in afterload to really decrease your RV stroke volume. Uh, the LV uh, it decreases as afterload goes up at a, at a much more um, gentle um, decline. And so the RV is very, very sensitive to, to afterload. Again, you know, thin wall chamber, a longitudinal contraction, not made to overcome uh, high pressures. I contrast that with uh, preload sensitivity on the, in the graph on the right. So, uh, you know, a little bit of atrial filling uh, for the LV results in a very steep increase in stroke uh, uh, work, uh, as, whereas the RV is not uh, anywhere near as, um, uh, as steep. And so you don't get a lot of bang for your buck uh, with increased atrial filling, which is another sort of reason to be very, very cautious with fluid in these patients. So I think uh, you've probably seen some variation of this chart before, but I think it's worth going through. Um, so you, you have your massive PE, you're going to end up with RV outflow obstruction, uh, immediate increase in RV afterload, uh, and you get RV pressure and volume overload, your RV begins to fail. And three things happen there, right? So you get elevated RV and diastolic pressure, and then you get uh, decreased LV function by two means. One is just that the, the RV is not filling the LV um, through the pulmonary circulation, and two is the ventricular interdependence, right? So you have your dilated uh, bulging RV uh, bulging into the LV, um, compressing it and decreasing LV filling directly um, by that component. So both of those combined to lead to uh, LV failure, decreased cardiac output, uh, lower MAPS. Um, when you get hypotensive, uh, remember your RV perfusion pressure, your RV coronary perfusion pressure is, uh, is the MAP minus your RV and diastolic pressure. So now we've gone down on our MAP, we've gone up on our RV and diastolic pressure, and we've reduced our RV um, uh, coronary perfusion pressure significantly, resulting in RV ischemia, and this is what really perpetuates the cycle of, of RV failure. Um, and, and it's good to think about these events because it talks about how you can uh, target your interventions uh, for these folks. This is the, the spiral of death that you've probably seen before uh, from the European Society of Cardiology um, guidelines, highlighting kind of everything that we just went through. And this is another uh, graphic that I like because uh, two reasons. One, it breaks things up into sort of their component physiology 
and then potentially therapeutic uh, strategies aimed at correcting those, uh, those particular um, pathologies, but also because of this part right here where it talks about the first process, you know, for acute artery failure is addressing any treatable cause. And in this case, we obviously have a treatable cause, which is the PE. And so before you get to any of this stuff and you start doing all of our complex ICU management, we need to make sure that we're addressing the underlying cause and have gotten that ball rolling. Um, while you're doing that, then you can look at your preload, uh, your afterload reducing um, things, so minimizing um, things that lead to vasoconstriction, potentially adding pulmonary vasodilators. Um, you can uh, target interventions to increase your RV perfusion. That's mainly raising your MAP, uh, so vasopressors, and if you still have a shock state going on, um, adding inotropes. Uh, and if none of that's working, then, you know, considering mechanical circulatory support at that point. So this is kind of what we went through here just to kind of highlight that, again, you know, our goal here is to really increase the, the MAP or the SVR uh, without uh, hopefully increasing the pulmonary vascular resistance too much or, or potentially even decreasing it um, as much as we can. And so what does this look like sort of practically? Well, so, again, uh, I'm going to heparinize this patient unless they're uh, imminently about to get uh, thrombolytics. Uh, and let's talk about the preload and the volume loading um, thing. So, you know, most of these patients are going to have elevated right-sided pressures, and uh, they're not going to be very tolerant of volume. And so uh, this is, uh, I think, the, the, the main instance to really uh, avoid fluid where you can really hurt somebody with fluid. You know, most of us, I think, would agree that generally you can give a little bit of fluid without causing many problems. But this is a case to be very, very sensitive to that. You know, in reality, uh, people have multiple things going on. So it may just not be a PE, and there may be settings where there is volume depletion or something else uh, that's going on. And so I think you really have to think about it. And, you know, if you feel like you need to convince yourself that maybe there could be some volume responsive component to things, uh, you may want to do some very gentle uh, volume. And that's like, you know, 500 cc's. This is not, you know, two liters and see what happens or 30 cc's per kilo. So probably no volume, and if you're going to give volume, it needs to be a very, very small amount for, for a very good reason. Like, like despite all this going on, you have a, uh, some indication or some sort of um, sense that the patient has uh, a good reason to be uh, volume deplete. I drew this big red line here again to highlight, like, before you get to any of this other stuff, you need to be addressing the underlying uh, problem, right? So either you're getting your thrombolytics ready or you've got your consult into your uh, IR or to, to surgery or whoever is going to assist with, with uh, getting rid of the clot. Um, after that, I think it's fairly standard um, from my standpoint, uh, ICU management. So early pressors here, and uh, I like norepinephrine, I think, as the first uh, agent of choice. Maybe the one thing it, it, I would say is that these are patients where I might be quicker to reach for uh, vasopressin as an add-on agent. So when my norepi starts getting to double digits, um, I might add vasopressin. What you don't want for these people is to have a tachyarrhythmia. Um, obviously, the, the decreased uh, filling time uh, and the loss of atrial kick uh, is not going to be very well tolerated. And so potentially uh, a role for vasopressin um, a little bit earlier um, for these folks. Epinephrine is an acceptable um, secondary alternative. And then if you still have um, uh, evidence of hypoperfusion after um, correcting your MAPS, uh, there's, there's potential role for dobutamine or inotropic support, um, generally in fairly modest doses, uh, again, along with norepi, because uh, as a vasodilator, you might be limited by your hypotension. So um, you'll read different things about milrinone. Um, I think I have more experience with dobutamine, so um, I, I use it more. 
Um, I think they're very sort of similar from a physiologic standpoint. Milrione is a, is a good pulmonary vasodilator. Um, some people think it's sort of an agent of choice um, in the setting of, of uh, pulmonary hypertension. Some people think it's almost contraindicated. Um, I don't think it's a whole lot different than dobutamine from my standpoint. And then pulmonary vasodilators, uh, INO, um, inhaled nitric oxide or inhaled epiprosinol or Flolan, uh, whatever you have available at your institution uh, as an add-on therapy. Remember, it's not just mechanical obstruction that's causing your, your increase in your pulmonary vascular resistance. There is uh, neurohormonal uh, activation, uh, cytokines and all that uh, good stuff that uh, may be causing vasoconstriction uh, and you may get some benefit from uh, pulmonary uh, venodilators. Uh, what you don't want to do for these patients is sort of uh, prophylactically intubate them. I've seen several patients uh, over the years who are, are you know, sick, uh, but doing okay, and um, somebody thinks it would be a good idea to intubate them before they go on a road trip or before their uh, procedure, and, and that doesn't uh, necessarily go well, right? The, the sort of failing RV is definitely a recipe for, uh, for, for peri-intubation rest. Um, you get your induction meds, you drop your preload, you get vasodilatation and hypotension, and then you put them on positive pressure. And I think it's a very, very high-risk uh, period for people. So um, I would uh, avoid it if possible. Really, you should try to treat the clot first. Um, and if you are going to, you know, some patients just need to be intubated, and that, that can't be avoided. Um, so uh, using uh, neutral induction agents as much as possible, such as accommodator ketamine, uh, potentially an awake fiber optic intubation if you have the expertise for that. Um, obviously, you're, as we talked about, you're not going to want to sort of aggressively fluid load these people, which is something, you know, I, you might do with a septic patient before you intubate them. Um, so vasopressors hanging. Uh, and or running and getting the map up um, before intubation is, I think, prudent. Um, again, you should really look to fix the underlying problem first. I like this graph here as well because it talks about sort of the effects of uh, lung uh, capacity, lung volumes on pulmonary vascular resistance. So these patients go on positive pressure. So you have your, your extra alveolar vessels, your large pulmonary vessels. They're actually going to do better from a vascular resistance standpoint uh, as your lungs inflate because they're going to be opened um, and uh, you're going you're to get uh, decreased vascular resistance. But you have many more intra-alveolar vessels, and as you distend those alveoli and compress those vessels, you're actually going to increase the pulmonary vascular resistance. So bottom line is anything above sort of functional residual capacity, you're actually causing an increase in your pulmonary vascular resistance. So more argument to avoid uh, excessive lung volumes and over-distension if these patients do end up on the ventilator. All right. Um, so good. So uh, I think that's kind of the, the ICU management in a nutshell. I want to uh, finish up with a couple of uh, cases um, here to, to highlight a few additional points. So uh, this is a 48-year-old gentleman who comes in with six hours of shortness of breath without any fever, or sputum, or any other infectious symptoms. He's generally well. He takes uh, Lipitor for some cholesterol. Uh, and uh, you can see his vital signs there. He's uh, normotensive. Um, he's anxious, but he's not in any distress. He's got warm extremities. Again, his labs are normal, with the exception of an elevated troponin. Um, uh, EKG has some not uh, specific T wave changes. And he, again, has a CTP, which shows a bilateral uh, lobar um, PE. And so doing your uh, due diligence and risk stratifying him, you put your echo probe on. And this is what you see here.
So I actually can't see the chat. Anybody want to comment on what you see? Thrombus and Yeah, so uh, someone said thrombus. I think you said in situ. I would call it, uh, in situ to me implies more that it might be sort of um, attached to something. This is more mobile. I think I, think I would call this thrombus in transit. Um, so in the right atrium here, you can see this sort of whirling sort of uh, echo density. It's kind of warm-like and serpiginous. On your peristernal short axis view on the right, it's confined to the right atrium here. Um, you can see a few more things. It's not actually projecting very well on the, uh, on the, on the screen here, but in the apical view um, here, uh, you get a sense that the RV is dilated. You can't really see the LV to compare it. And then you, you start to see what you see with the McConnell sign here, right? If you look at the apex, um, you can't see the free wall very well, so you don't really know uh, how well that's contracting, but there's this sort of trampoline-like appearance of the RV apex, which uh, goes along with the McConnell sign. But yeah, the main finding here is this right atrial thrombus. So, so how would you manage this at this point? So this is a guy who has hemodynamically stable um, PE, um, but he's got uh, thrombus in his right atrium. So your choices are heparin, thrombolysis, catheter-based therapy, or surgical embolectomy. Anybody wants to comment, go right ahead. Can't wait to get back in the room with everybody so we can have uh, a little more direct pimping. For, my, uh, for, the, for the hospital center fellows. But anyway, um, this is clot in transit, um, as was mentioned, and it occurs in about 4% of PE. So um, it, it is something that I think you may see more and more of as we do more and more sort of echocardiography for, for risk stratification. Uh, the main point here is that this is a significant event. This is a, you know, has a high associated mortality. You'll see uh, data citing, you know, incidents or uh, Mortality upwards of 90% uh, for untreated clot in transit. Uh, when you look at all comers, it's probably around 30% uh, mortality um, uh, with treatment. You'll read a couple different types. Type A is what you saw here, the mobile sort of um, free-floating thrombus in the right atrium, which is associated with P and DVT, uh, versus the type B, which is more associated with atrial um, arrhythmias uh, and is more of a mural um, picture, and then type C supposedly is a mixed uh, combination of the two. Um, this is a series looking at, you know, uh, about 300 patients actually who had um, uh, right atrial thrombus um, on echocardiography and how they were treated. Um, so anticoagulation alone, mortality rate was 37%, thrombolysis 18%, and embolectomy, open surgical embolectomy was 14%. Uh, when they adjusted for severity of illness and other sort of confounders, the uh, adjusted odds ratio for survival actually favored thrombolysis on um, this series. There's another series out there where it was slightly in favor of embolectomy. Um, so bottom line is, you know, this is a high-risk event. This uh, pretty much, uh, I think, makes takes people into that high-risk category despite their other features. Um, the optimal therapy is really unknown. This is probably a great uh, use of the PERT team or the multidisciplinary team where you get all your specialists involved and talk about what's uh, best uh, for this patient. Nevertheless, thrombolysis, I think, is an acceptable, um, you know, uh, treatment for this, and in many cases is recommended and may be the preferred treatment. There are case reports out there of, of thrombus that is wedged in between a PFO, um, so it's actually, you know, a paradoxical thrombus in transit, um, and there is theoretical concern that thrombolytics in that setting 
might lead to dissolution of the clot irregularly and break off, having it break off and causing a, a paradoxical embolism stroke. Um, and and uh, at least the case report level data you know, suggests CT surgery may be a better um, avenue for, for those patients. There really is no data for catheter-based therapies. Um, there is a theoretical risk of dislodgement, obviously, anytime you're, you're putting a catheter uh, through where there's that clot. Um, there's some case reports out there. I reached out to our IR guys here just to sort of see what they thought on that, um, and I, I didn't hear back from them. But if anybody has any other experience with that, I'd be interested to hear it as we get to the, to the end of the talk. The last thing I'm going to talk about is uh, pregnancy-associated PE. So pregnancy, obviously, is a time of uh, increased risk of clot and an increased risk of bleeding. Um, of pregnancy-associated PE, about 5 to 7% uh, would fall into the high-risk category. I think one question that comes up is, you know, with the physiologic changes of pregnancy, uh, expanded blood volume, lower blood pressure, dilated um, cardiac chambers, uh, do we use the same risk stratification criteria for PE? And the answer is yes. Um, you know, both, both uh, multiple sort of specialty societies and guidelines uh, would support that you use the same criteria to define massive PE uh, in a pregnant patient. So sustained hypotension, uh, less than 90, or shock, or CPR. Um, as I mentioned, thrombolysis is generally considered a relative contraindication, or pregnancy is generally considered a, a relative contraindication to thrombolysis. However, in most of the series that are out there, very good maternal survival uh, with uh, thrombolysis. Uh, theoretically, TPA does not cross the placenta itself. It's a high molecular weight compound. However, the, the, the changes in the blood um, uh, indirectly uh, obviously may, may have impact um, on the fetus there. I think the main take-home point, and I'll show the data for this in just a second, is that, you know, antepartum in the, in the, in the pregnancy period um, and in the late postpartum after 72 hours, bleeding risk is probably increased, but it's, it's modestly increased, and um, guidelines still would favor thrombolysis uh, uh, versus, uh, versus doing nothing uh, in patients who have high-risk PE. Um, the peripartum period, so right around the time of delivery and the first 24 hours especially, but really probably out to the first 72 hours, is an extremely high-risk bleeding time. Um, and, uh, you know, thrombolysis is going to be uh, contraindicated in that period. Um, and that may be a good time where catheter-directed therapies and or ECMO or, or surgical embolectomy are going to be your, your treatment of choice. This is the data that, uh, where that comes from. Basically, looking at 117 patients, again, uh, maternal survival is good uh, across the board. Bleeding is high, 20 to 29%, uh, with the exception of the ECMO patients, three patients got ECMO, and fetal survival is also um, pretty good. You know, so ECMO may be a good option um, in this group. I think catheter-directed therapy, there's no uh, data for that yet, but I think that's also a very good option uh, in the immediate peripartum uh, period. Um, and just to comment on that again, just to drive on the point, really most of this bleeding risk is right around the time of delivery in the first 24 to 72 hours afterwards. And so I think that's something to, to keep in mind. Obviously, you're going to make these decisions in conjunction with your OB colleagues uh, and your, and your uh, other involved folks. So in summary, uh, I think you know, high risk or massive P is defined by shock. CPR or sustained hypotension. We talked about the criteria there. It's really important to think of things as a spectrum, uh, the risk of death from the PE versus the risk of major bleeding. Uh, we have these categories for folks, but uh, there can be a lot of sort of room for judgment um, in between those categories. A lot of it depends on the individual patient, on the provider, and really on your institutional practice. So you've really got to have situational awareness of, of what's going on and what's sort of accepted practice at your institution. Um, you know, I think 
if you wanted to favor something like low-dose thrombolytic therapy, that's something that should be done in conjunction with a group uh, and, you know, to work to develop a protocol. Um, I think a lot of places are going more towards catheter-directed therapies because that's what's, what's being pushed and what's available. And so it's just something uh, to, to keep in mind that I think we need to have a good sort of multidisciplinary group and working relationships on the approach to, to PE. And then finally, clot and transit, recognize that that's a high-risk uh, event uh, that warrants aggressive therapy. And as we just talked about pregnancy relates to the peripartum, it's the highest bleeding risk where you should think about alternatives to thrombolytics. If you need to give thrombolytics to a pregnant patient because you have no other option and they have, have high-risk PE, uh, that is recommended and supported by, um, by various specialty um, societies, including the, the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. So with that, uh, I'll stop, and uh, thanks for your attention. I'm happy to answer any questions.